you can't ever write true biography or history without experiencing the landscape and seeing how it must have shaped people's behavior. That is best-selling author and historian Charlotte Gray. She's our guest on this edition of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast brought to you by One Ocean Expeditions. Welcome to Explore, the Canadian Geographic podcast where we talk to the world's greatest explorers about how Canada, its landscape, wildlife, people, and history have shaped their own spirit of discovery. I'm your host, David McGuffin. And just before we get going here, I want to say thank you to all of you who have been listening out there. We couldn't do this without you. This is our last episode of our first season of Explore, and it's been an incredible journey. I'm not sure if it's obvious, but having these conversations with these amazing Canadians has been some of the most fun I've had in my long career. And they've taken us on some incredible adventures. If I were ever reborn, it was through an awareness uh, that the canoe is a vessel of discovery. I just said to myself, this is so far away from Star Trek and Flash Gordon. This is like the most rudimentary tin can possible. It's being inside a Roman candle, being inside an explosive device. Early in the morning, polar bear grabbed me and like my dad and my brother-in-law couldn't shoot through the tent because it was an 11-foot polar bear. You got to make sure you know where you're going to shoot. I've had lightning strikes so close that I can feel the heat on my face. Oh, it hits you in the chest. The shockwave hits you in the chest. Yeah, I broke through a river up in Sacklick Fjord. We were going up through a very narrow canyon and when we were near the top and I was scouting out, I broke through this ice. I was being pulled under the water. I almost did not get out of that hole alive. I have cave dive beneath golf courses, a bowling alley, homes. Um, my favorite is underneath the salad bar of a Sunny's barbecue restaurant. Well, a surface tracking team was like walking in between the tables in a restaurant yelling, cave survey coming through and planting a orange flag in a salad bar potato salad. Those are the voices of James Raffin, Roberta Bonder, Johnny Isseluk, George Karunas, Ray Zahab, and Jill Heinerth. Just a few of the amazing explorers who spoke to us in this first season. And to toot our own horn a bit, these conversations got Explore selected this month as a new and notable podcast by CBC's Podcast Playlist, which is a really big deal in our world. And thanks to you listeners, we've also trended as a podcast multiple times on Spotify. So thank you for that. We're working on setting up another season of Explore. If that's something you want to hear or have thoughts on what it could include, let us know on social media. You can reach out to Canadian Geographic on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Our handle is at CanGeo. You can also email us at explore at canadiangeographic.ca. Let's now turn to this week's guest. Charlotte Gray doesn't need a big introduction for many Canadians. She's one of the country's most beloved authors and historians. 
For a quarter century, she has delighted readers with nonfiction histories that have delved into often unexamined corners of Canadian history and revealed characters, places, and moments in time that have done so much to explain the hows and whys of Canada. Her works on topics like 19th century pioneers Susanna Moody and Catherine Parr Trail, or First Nations poet Pauline Johnson, or the mother of Prime Minister Mackenzie King, to name just a few, have won more awards than we can list here. She is a member of the Order of Canada and a fellow of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. For our conversation, we met in the Sir Christopher Ndache reading room at the RCGS headquarters overlooking the mighty Ottawa River, and we began with her latest book, Murdered Midas, out this fall. It's about the life and death of Sir Harry Oakes, a Canadian mining magnate who was once one of the richest men in the British Empire, making his millions from a massive gold seam in northern Ontario. His murder in the Bahamas during World War II was described at the time as the crime of the century, wrapped up in a cast of characters that include Nazi appeasers, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, and Caribbean playboys. So, with no further ado, here's Charlotte Gray. Harry Oakes was a man who was born in Maine in 1874, and he was a sort of unfocused teenager who didn't really know what he wanted to do. And then he read about the gold rush in the Yukon. And like many young men at that period, which was a very unsettled period in North American history, he got the gold bug and he rushed off to the Yukon wanting to sort of follow the dream because the dream at that point was that you could be broken in lousy circumstances. But you went up there, you dug a hole in the ground, you found gold and your life was changed on a dime. It was going to be wonderful. Well, of course, that happened to about sort of 2% of all the people who went up to the gold rush in the 1890s. And he was too late. Uh, He didn't make any money there. But for the next 20 years, he continued to chase that dream all over the world. He was always broke. He kept having to go back to his family, who were sort of fairly established um, New Englanders. And he finally ended up, uh, he was actually in Death Valley, Arizona, and he heard about a gold rush in northern Ontario, an area that was just gradually opening up to settlers. And he went home, got more money, yet more money, because it's very expensive to go prospecting in an area where there's no services, no transport, no stores, just a bunch of guys like you in a check shirt and hobnail boots um, staking claims. But Harry Oakes was smart. He had done some geology studies. He had really thought about what kind of geological formations are the ones where there is likely to be gold, what ancient rocks are are, uh, possibly laced with minerals. And he went up, uh, there's many stories about his journey to a little tiny place on the Tomogamy and Northern Ontario Railway, which had just been built. Uh, Apparently, he didn't even have money for a ticket, it was said, and the ticket inspector discovered that he didn't have a ticket and kicked him off the train at a place called Swastika. Yeah. We're talking here 1911 before Swastika had the resonance it does for us today. It was actually a good luck sign. It was a good luck sign at that point. Sort of stocky, rather belligerent New Englander gets off and discovers that there are two gold mines in Swastika at that point. Not particularly productive, but... uh, There were guys working them, prospectors. And he started working that area. And he spent three years. 
he just knew in his bones that this was going to be a good area. But it was a really tough life. But in 1912, he staked a claim and Lakeshore Mines was born. And in 1914, he struck a really rich seam of gold. And mm. from then, sort of, it, things moved quite fast uh, because it became the most productive gold right. mine in that area. Uh, the other thing I find amazing, too, is just how he followed this gold lust really all over the world. And that there was this sort of global phenomenon at this point, too, and got to some pretty far-flung places. This was a very unsettled era all across North America. For example, the 1890s was a time of a terrible economic slump. People were leaving family farms and uh, either going west or going north, just sort of wanting to get to the frontier and reinvent themselves. But the people who were making a lot of money were the Rockefellers and the Morgans. It was right. the money men. It wasn't generally people like Harry Oakes. Great. So Harry Oakes is in Kirkland Lake, and he's convinced he's onto something here. He's convinced he's onto something. And it's a quite sort of weird society of eccentrics. Um, these are all men, and it's 90% men, who are following their dream and... They're digging endlessly. He wasn't alone in being quite an antisocial individual who would happily sort of work uh, 14, 16 hours a day and then spend the night in just a canvas lean-to when the temperature was dipping way below zero. Tough, pretty misogynist, surviving, as you mentioned, low, low temperatures, long winters, going into town just to restock with bacon and beans and examining rocks thinking that uh, this looked good, there was a sparkle in the rock, because this was hard rock mining. It wasn't, as in some of the earlier gold rushes, like California or Yukon, um, alluvial gold, which turns up in sort of sand and gravel as nuggets and flakes, because that's been uh, left by uh, fast-flowing rivers. Right, this so it's that like classic it, image of people panning yeah. in the rivers, but You didn't not. pan for gold in northern Ontario. It's hard rock mining, and you actually have to sort of discern what you think is gold within a rock, and then you have to smelt it. Is it pick and shovel, or is it dynamite? It's pick and shovel. Yeah. To begin with, it's pick and shovel. A bit of dynamite, or black powder as it was quite often, but it's, it's dangerous, and it's a lot of hauling, and you dig down and down and down. Ideally, you have a partner, so one of you is in the hole um, with a pickaxe and a shovel, filling buckets of rocks, and then... On the ground above is your partner who has a windlass and is hauling up the buckets of ore. And I know from having read all about the, the mining actually in the uh, Yukon that there was always a big squabble about which was the toughest job. Because if you were on the ground hauling up the buckets, uh, you were prey to all the snowstorms and the wind and the elements. But if you were down in the hole, in the pit, you were constantly threatened by rock slides. Feels like there's no winners in that one. <laughs> oh, you're a winner if you find gold. So once he's hit this seam that he's found on the shores of the lake, how quickly is the money pouring in for Harry Oaks? Well, in fact, it does take a little while for him to get going because we're now in the middle of the First World War. And Canada, of course, was lining up behind the British so much of the labor that he would have relied on to help him exploit his find, and so much of the money that he needed to raise for the heavy machinery was actually being directed towards the war effort. 
And he, as an American, had no sense of obligation to go and fight in Europe. Uh, and it takes a long time for him to be able to raise the money, which led to, for Harry Oakes, a lifelong sense of being screwed by financiers. You know, the, the rich men in silk suits who uh, wouldn't risk their capital when he had sort of risked his health uh, actually finding the gold. All they wanted to do was own his gold mine and elbow him out of the way. And he was absolutely dedicated from the day one that he would maintain ownership of the mine all through the whole process from development to exploitation to production, which makes him extraordinarily rare Mm -hmm. in the history of mining in this country. Anyway, so he finds gold. He takes some time to finally uh, raise the money necessary to acquire the machinery, to dig, to sort, to smelt. But by 1919, 1920, it's beginning to gush. Mm -hmm. And I mean, in money terms, not in physical terms, in money terms, it's like a, a gusher, an oil well. And Harry Oakes was extraordinarily wealthy, very, very fast. And Kirkland Lake begins to develop as news that there are jobs up there. Ultimately, this is a bigger gold hit than happened in the Klondike and happened in California. I'm also curious about why those two are a bigger story, do you think? I think that they were bigger stories because they were both on the frontier. California, uh, you know, was this sort of huge American romance Mm. of an army of men surging across to the West Coast. And that was the end of the frontier. But it was also generated its own mythology of uh, tough guys and just the excitement of uh, what was regarded, wrongly, of course, as an empty land with nobody else there. Uh, Similarly, the Klondike acquired its own mythology because it was so far north and so challenging for the guys who got there. You know, they never stopped bragging about it after they eventually returned to civilization. Northern Ontario was much less glamorous from the start because it was actually within an easy train ride of Toronto. So it never sort of seemed like a huge physical challenge to get there. And there were a series of strikes up there, beginning the silver strike in Cobalt, followed by previous gold mines in uh, Porcupine Lake, which became Timmins, and then finally Kirkland Lake, where the gold was of superior quality. Those mines all generated a society of get-rich-quick experts who wanted to spend in the area as soon as they had uh, actually made their fortune. So sort of settlements like Halebury grew up in the area where there were posh hotels serving champagne every night. And But it was so get-rich-quick and so much easier, in fact, just to go back to Toronto that it didn't acquire the mystique. So there is Toronto. And then Harry Oakes makes this money. And first of all, how much money would he be making? It? His wealth was the equivalent of about 2% of the federal budget. It was huge. That's stunning. The no. average wage of a school teacher at this period was about $1,000 a year, and he was earning 25000 a week. I mean, this is a guy who's like been this rugged individualist for decades, really, and sort of all on his own in the bush, having angry conversations in his head, apparently. And what, what happens when all of a sudden that guy becomes that rich? Well, by now, he's, you know, he's been in the bush, as you say, for two decades. He's lost any gloss of uh, sophistication he might have acquired as a middle-class kid in Maine. 
who went to a private school, private college, Bowdoin College. But he's getting bored. I mean, the mine is mining away. He's got a manager and he uh, isn't really terribly interested. He doesn't have any interests other than mining. He's been so single-minded all this, these years. But he takes a cruise and probably, in fact, to go and look at gold mines elsewhere to see whether they have superior equipment. And he amazes all his uh, Kirkland Lake friends by arriving back with a wife, Eunice, a young Australian woman half his age, who he had met on the cruise and within weeks married. And by all accounts, particularly in the early years, it was a very successful marriage. And they start having children. He's still living up in Kirkland Lake. I think probably Eunice prompted him to actually suggest they move to somewhere that uh, where their children would uh, have more chances. Right. Where do they wind up then? They wind up uh, in Niagara Falls. He buys this huge house. You can still see it, actually, because he renamed it Oak Hall. And it's now the headquarters of the Niagara Parks Organization. And he remodels it at an enormous expense, putting in elevators and a swimming pool. And he starts sort of throwing his money around. And the government notices quite how rich he is. And the government realizes, particularly as Canada moves into a depression after the 1929 crash, they realize that Harry's fortune is something they can tax. And this drives him out of the country. He uh, is furious that suddenly new taxes are being imposed on um, fortunes like his. He had been paying about a third of his annual income in tax, but suddenly it shoots up to about 90% that uh, he's going to lose to the tax man. And he is so furious, he just one night gets on a train and goes south into the States, ends up at that point in Palm Beach and tells everybody that he's not going to be robbed blind by a government that's never done anything for him. It's very controversial because uh, where does his wealth come from? He made all his money in Canada. And he's a Canadian it, citizen at this point. Uh, Isn't he, or? Yes, he's by now become a Canadian citizen. Mm-hmm. Or actually at that stage, it's still a, a citizen of the British Empire. But it's the same argument as uh, for tax exiles today, which is, you know, the, for the individuals, it's I made the money, it's mine, I'll put it where I like. For the country, it's uh, you made all your money here with the natural resources of this country, and don't you owe us something? So ultimately, he ends up in the Bahamas. And this is where I think if anyone has heard of Sir Harry Oakes, it's probably through this. And it's, it, it's still a tax haven to this day, but it's really this coming into its own in that period as a tax haven. Um, and a, just a fascinating cast of characters there, which ultimately leads to his demise. Can you just explain what, what he walked into there and what that experience was? In 1933, which is when uh, Harry Oakes turns up, in the Bahamas. These were islands, particularly New Providence, the, uh, the main island where Nassau, the capital of the Bahamas is, which had one glorious thing going for them at that point, which was climate. Mm. In every other way, they were actually pretty depressed. Various industries like the sisal industry had collapsed. The only time the Bahamas had ever actually managed to make any money was, first of all, in the era of pirates, and secondly, during Prohibition, where Mm. it had become a staging post for smugglers bringing uh, alcohol into the States. So not a lot of legal wealth made there. 
a lot of illegal wealth concentrated just within a small oligarchy there of white merchants who were known as the Bay Street Boys or the Bay Street Bandits. Uh, they all had their offices on Bay Street in Nassau. 90% of the population were black Bahamians who had an incredibly low standard of living and incredibly low levels of education and were really depressed. So it was a superficially incredibly attractive place. Wonderful climate, incredible beaches, turquoise sea, the kind of place you dream about if you're in northern Ontario mm -hmm. in uh, January. Harry is invited to go and visit by a man called Harold Christie, who's a real estate dealer there. And he goes across and Harold Christie explains to him that not only is there lots of property just aching to be both bought and developed, but also it's a tax haven and he doesn't have to pay any tax if he moves uh, to the Bahamas. And Harry's sold on it. Harry finds this an incredibly attractive offer. He moves all his uh, money into um, Bahamian holding companies, which he then buys shares in. This is the huge tax dodge mm -hmm. he does. And uh, settles down, starts building houses, builds a golf course, uh, and does what he loves best. I mean, the sort of white elite in the Bahamas are mainly fairly uh, lazy, martini-guzzling people who are deeply racist in their attitudes mm -hmm. uh, to their fellow Bahamians and incredibly snobbish about this man who sticks to wearing prospector breeches and dirty shirts uh, in their midst, except they can't resist him because he's so wealthy. He's got nothing but scorn for them. But what he does love doing is ripping up the landscape, doing his own version of what he used to do in northern Ontario, which is uh, reshaping the landscape to suit his ends. So he's just personally doing this? Well, he acquires a large workforce mm. of Bahamians, offends the local uh, white elite by paying them higher wages oh, than they're normally paid because they were kept on very low wages of just a couple of dollars a day and becomes in many ways an important citizen, not just because he owns maybe as much as a third of New Providence, the main island, but also because during the Depression has a large workforce and does take various initiatives that attracts other tax exiles plus tourists to the island in the 1930s. At this point, there's a new governor arrives. Well, the new governor arrives in 1940. First of all, in 1939, Harry Oakes becomes Sir Harry Oakes, because in addition to everything he's doing in the Bahamas, he's also spending time buying property in England and meets a fairly sort of uh, sleazy group of uh, people who are all on the far right. They're appeasers just before the Second World War. Mm. Um, but he gives big donation to a local hospital and becomes Sir Harry Oakes, mm -hmm. uh, which is immensely pleasing to him. Then in 1940, uh, he still mainly resides in the Bahamas. And who should arrive there as the governor but the Duke of Windsor, the former Edward VIII. The Duke of Windsor and... His wife, the woman for whom he left the throne, right, right, which is the right. Duchess, and um, they quickly become acquaintances of the Oaks. They can't help it. This is a tiny society, and the Duke wants to play golf on Sir Harry's golf course. So they get to know him, and at this point, the Bahamas becomes this rather sort of exclusive little playground because lots of people who are refugees from the war in Europe turn up there, sort of 
RAF wives and uh, uh, anyone who got the money get out of London. But Harry's life is unwinding at this point. He has five children. He is getting ratty about what was the politics of the Bahamas. There's also this huge family ruction because their eldest daughter, Nancy, elopes three days after her 18th birthday with a Mauritian playboy called Freddie de Marigny, Mm. who's sort of like a 1940s Hollywood villain. He's incredibly well-dressed and well-spoken, slender, loves shocking people, and had been married twice before. And they just see him as a fortune hunter. Nancy, young and very pretty, is deeply in love with him. Freddie de Marigny and Harry Oakes have several very well-publicized rows where they um, scream at each other in the street, particularly Harry Oakes, who probably was drunk on a couple of these Mm. occasions. And then in July 1943, the night before Harry Oakes is going to join his wife in uh, Bar Harbor, Maine, he plays tennis and then has dinner with Harold Christie. They both go to bed. And the next morning, Harold Christie wakes up, sort of pads along the outdoor balcony of Harry Oakes's house to wake his friend Harry. They've got a date with a local journalist and finds this appalling sight, which is Oakes, his host, uh, on the bed, which is still smoldering. It's been set light. Oakes is uh, covered in blood and the mosquito net above him has burnt and there are four puncture wounds in Oakes's skull. Mm. And he has been brutally murdered. This is one of the richest men in the world. How big a story was this? Huge. Um, I mean, it it knocked the war off the front pages. Um, It was particularly big in the American press because anything that involved the Duke of Windsor, and this did involve the Duke of Windsor as the governor of the colony, the American papers loved. Um, But also the idea of this murdered millionaire on a paradise island was just captivating. And... In the Bahamas, the Bahamas and Nassau were immediately just sort of convulsed with gossip about what had happened and who had done it. No one gets ultimately convicted of murder in this case. There's certainly a suspect, and I think we should let people read the book and figure that one out. There seems to be a lot of parallels with the, certainly the amount of wealth back then as to what we're seeing in our world now. And is, are there parallels that you see to our time now? There were two reasons I wanted to explore the Harry Oaks story. And the first one actually was the whole development of mining in Mm. Canada because one of the things that Harry Oakes was a major contributor to was the fact that uh, Toronto became the mining capital of the world because of Lakeshore and other mines in northern Ontario, which had actually frankly kept the Ontario economy afloat during the dreadful depression of the 1930s when, you know, the Western provinces were just dying because of the agricultural failures and the collapse of the wheat market, the grain markets. I wanted to write about his contribution to mining, which still, you know, plays such an important role in our economy today. If we think about the amount of time we spend talking about how much we should still be exploiting our oil and gas resources or bitumen. Um, you know, these big questions about what we're doing to the land and, of course, to the people, the original inhabitants, the indigenous people. I mean, a lot of this, these were issues in Harry's day. 
The second reason I wanted to write about this was um, the whole issue of tax exiles and tax havens mm-hmm. is something that it's not just a, a 21st century phenomenon. It's a big phenomenon. And uh, the rest of us who pay taxes get very angry that some people manage to escape them, but mm-hmm. it's not a new phenomenon. But the third aspect of the story that really interested me is how a story gets shaped. I always love the Jean-Paul Sartre quote, uh, a corpse is open to all comers. And once Harry was dead, boy, did his story get distorted by subsequent writers, by uh, people who were inquiring into what had really happened. You know, he becomes a bit player in the largest story of the Duke of Windsor's role as this sort of expatriate royal who Mm -hmm. uh, had been sympathetic to the Nazis. There are so many aspects of the story which I think do resonate today. And I hope, in fact, also when I trace Harry's sort of post-death existence as a character in other dramas, um, I hope that people will realize, you know, there's never one set of facts. And some facts are actually speculative, some are real, and some are outright lies for uh, commercial gain. To go back to the the whole history of the mining industry and its impact on Northern Ontario and broadly on the whole country, I mean, what lessons do you think you learned from that that apply to today? Well, I actually am quite admiring of Harry's stick-to-itness, that he did sort of keep going and really believe in what he was doing because uh, it's pretty discouraging. You go up there, I mean, I went up there uh, to... Uh, see where it had all happened and to look in the local archives and to meet uh, some of the people there. And um, it's so beautiful up there in the summer in the Tamagami area. It's Canadian Shield, it's rocks, blue lakes, uh, bush going on forever. In the winter, it is so bleak. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I'm a 21st century woman. I do not want to... (laughs) be in a canvas tent right. in the bush yeah. in January. In minus 40. In yeah. minus 40. Um, but I was also struck by how the whole structure of the mining industry mm-hmm. with the uh, financiers in Toronto uh, deciding whether or not to actually invest in any of these mines and uh, how often sort of innocent investors who were sold shares in mines that they were told were an absolute sure thing, you know, this one's going to be very productive, mm-hmm. how they were taken for a ride. Uh, there were a lot of people who made a lot of money very dishonestly. How important is traveling to the places you're writing about? Absolutely crucial. You absolutely have to go there and look at it. Sometimes just to stop yourself making stupid mistakes. I mean, there are many times when I've written a paragraph about what the view, for example, of uh, when Pauline Johnson, the Mohawk poet from Grand River, uh, the Six Nations Reserve, I wrote a paragraph, having not been there, about the view from the house she grew up in and the view down the river. When I got there, I realized there was no way she had a view down the river because uh, the house was set back. I mean, just sort of trivial Mm -hmm. stuff like that but also to get a sense of the wonder of the landscape. When I wrote about the Yukon gold rush, I lived in Dawson City for three months at the wonderful Writers' Retreat where Pierre Burton grew up uh, and is now administered by the Writers' Trust. Um, Landscape became almost another character in my book as I realized just how menacingly beautiful it was. The extraordinary sunsets, the 
giddy experience of The Longest Night. You can't ever write true biography or history without experiencing the landscape and seeing how it must have shaped people's behavior. Well, I'd love to go back to you arriving in Canada, just to get a bit of that. I mean, you were, so you were born in Sheffield, England. Um, you came here at an interesting time in this country's history. It's sort of late 70s. The Quebec separatism was in full blow. I mean, this country was in a kind of rocky shape financially at that time. I mean, what brought you here? I came to Canada because at university in England, I'd met a Canadian. And um, we'd stayed in touch. We'd stayed good friends. And then I came to stay with him. And I lived with him for about six months. And unfortunately, the six months I lived with him were um, September to April. And at which point it then started snowing on the 1st of May. And I said, I can't stand this climate and bought a ticket home. And didn't realize that, you know, a switch goes um, on about the um, 12th of May. And the country transforms itself from basically being Scandinavian to basically being Mediterranean. And people's behavior change in the same way. And they, um, you know, suddenly Bywood Market is full of uh, women wearing incredibly skimpy outfits. People are sitting out drinking beer and having a good time. Whereas, you know, in the darkness of, January, you mm. don't see people because they're so bundled up in their um, parkas. And I did love, from the very beginning, the sense of sort of endless outdoors. Mm. I mean, I'd grown up in the north of England, and the area I grew up in wasn't the sort of beautifully manicured south of England mm. that most tourists see with, you know, exquisite uh, little farmhouses and uh, well-kept hedgerows and small fields, sort of Beatrix Potterland. I grew up in the Derbyshire Dales and I knew the Yorkshire Moors. So I was used to looking at a horizon where there wasn't a fence between me and the horizon. And I loved that. As a child then, did you have an inkling of what Canada was? I was so ignorant when I arrived. I thought, uh, so, you know, we're going back to 1978. Canada at that point was much more British than it is today. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, you know, the Queen was on the money, the Queen was on the stamps... Um, I arrived in Ottawa, which was still a largely white society. I was fascinated that there were two languages. I hadn't expected that. Um, And I knew nothing, 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 nothing about the vast geographical differences, the regionalism, the different groups. I started by writing about politics and Mm -hmm. realized that Ottawa was the most wonderful place to get a glimpse of a larger Canada because there were representatives from communities right across the country coming here. And I started meeting um, unilingual Quebecers or Ukrainians from um, Manitoba, um, the British Columbians with a deep sense of grievance against the way they were ignored. Of course, any Maritimer with an accent I almost recognized because it sounded so Irish I'd learnt very quickly that most of my assumptions were uh, completely wrong. I mean, at its most sort of simplistic, I'd grown up in a society dominated by class. The class mm-hmm. system in Britain still has an iron grip. This is a country dominated by regionalism. Mm-hmm. It wasn't class that divided people. It was completely different regional experiences. Was that refreshing for you? It was intriguing, Getting away from the class system was fantastic. I mean, every society is um, stratified. Mm. But here, it's much more of a meritocracy. The regionalism, 
I still find intriguing and also I'm always fascinated by what makes a country like Canada work, you know, given the sort of regional divides. And they were very acute when I arrived, as you mentioned. I mean, it was not just the national unity crisis with um, Quebec, but also the very strong sort of Western alienation. Mm -hmm. But what what's the glue? What keeps everybody together? And that has changed since I've been here. Increasingly, when I first arrived, there was sort of so much fear of American domination, particularly of American culture. But now, in fact, Canada and the United States are markedly different societies on several different dimensions, you know, including attitudes to gun control, attitudes to religion. Race is a huge divide. You know, Canada does not have the searing history of uh, slavery that the United States has. So you dropped in, really, covered politics, and there's a lot to cover then. It was actually a fascinating time to be here. What interests me, too, is then when you made the shift to writing books, the people you wrote about weren't sort of the prime ministers or the big cabinet ministers or the people right at the center of the story, with the people you'd been covering. You, I mean, they're, they're different, like Susanna Moody and Catherine Partrail or two women on the frontier in, in central Ontario in the 19th century, or Pauline Johnson, as you were saying, is a, a First Nations poet. Um, what attracted you to these people who are sort of more on the fringes? I never felt particularly interested in writing about wars and laws. Uh, you know, I mean, Canadian history, it's still a young subject, although it's an old country and has been dominated by political and military history. Uh, there was very little social history. And when people within universities started writing about the social history, it was after there'd already been a revolution in the way history is explored in universities. It had become a much more sort of sociological or social science project than actually narrative history. What was it like to actually be there? And the question, what was it like to actually be there, mm -hmm. is one that's always fascinated me. What were people's lives really like? How did a woman who had been a literary sensation in Britain in the 1820s, Susanna Moody, how did she adapt to arriving in the woods of Upper Canada and realizing not only that she and her husband were going to go and have to build their own log cabin practically, and she was going to be raising children in a community of about seven other log cabins where there was no school, but also she was a compulsive writer and there was no publishing industry here. What was it like? Why did Alexander Graham Bell, another of the people I've mm -hmm. written about, why did he fall in love with Cape Breton? What was it about Cape Breton that meant so much to this man who'd been born in um, Scotland, in Edinburgh, a cosmopolitan capital, who'd lived in Washington, um, been uh, celebrated all over the world, and suddenly ends up in a house in Cape Britain, the most remote area of eastern Canada. Why did he love it so much? Mm. Uh, what was he like? Yeah. So it's always those kind of questions. Yeah. Can I ask you a quick question? Why did he love it so much? What was your answer to that? He loved it because he really didn't like having to be sociable in places like Washington, where he lived. Mm. Uh, his wife made him stay there because she wanted their daughters to uh, get a decent education but he loved striding over the um, hills near the Bredore Lake or right. sailing in the Bredore Lakes. 
and he loved the Scottishness of it. Yeah, it was a fair bit of Scotland and Cape Breton. When he moved there in the 1880s, 80% of Cape Bretoners only spoke Gaelic. Gaelic speaking, wow, that's amazing. Um, and 25 years ago when you're starting to do this and looking at these sort of oral histories of people more on the ground level, there wasn't, was not a lot of that going on at the time in Canada? No, uh, it was um, incredibly gratifying actually because the first book I wrote was actually about the mother of William Lyon Mackenzie King, but it wasn't a political book at all. It was actually about this woman and it was about late 19th century Canada and Toronto and what it was like to... Uh, sort of try to keep up appearances when um, you have no money and uh, you're the daughter of a rebel uh, and you've been socially scorned. Um, then I wrote about the two sisters. And what absolutely thrilled me was that the books did really, really well. I mean, I'm, I think, probably a very typical writer, which is once I've found a subject that really intrigues me, I'm so deeply in the project that I love the research and then I start shaping the material and it's this sort of little feedback loop between me, the screen and the keyboard and I'm always answering my own questions. I'm not really thinking about sort of who's the end user of this product. So it was a huge thrill and surprise that they did extremely well. And I thought, ah, I could just keep doing this. This is what I want to do. Excellent. And that's, it's worked out. And so you're, you're done with Sir Harry Oaks. Is this an interesting time for you and sort of who's the next character you're going to chase? Um, I'm still working on what yeah. my next project is. Yeah. Is that fun sure. for you? It is. Um, I read a remark the other day by the brilliant British novelist, Iris Murdoch, who mm. said... Uh, Every book is the ruin of a great shimmering dream. And I think for many writers, you know, we have this fabulous conception of this book in our head before we actually start committing ourselves to paper. And you always think, oh, I'm nearly there, but I could have made it better. Well, I have to say Sir Harry Oaks was a joy to read, so... That's uh, wonderful to hear. It really was. Um, There's a few questions I ask people we have when they come onto this program, one of which is, here we are in the 21st century. What does exploring or exploration mean to you in this day and age? Exploration to me is still an endeavor of understanding our world. Um, I think often for many people, it's about self-exploration. But that's not what it is for me. It's about trying to understand the universe and trying to understand the place of mankind in this extraordinary infinity. And when you travel, and for your books and you're traveling quite a bit, um, is there something that you bring with you always, like something that's necessary or perhaps good luck or talisman or something like that? No. What I do always try to do, though, is really notice things. Mm. You know, I'm often asked, uh, you know, if you want to be a writer, um, what should you do? What, I, what advice do I give a student um, who wants to write books, any kind of books, mm -hmm. novels, nonfiction? And I say, keep a journal, but make sure that the journal is not, I feel this and I think this and all about yourself. Make sure that the journal is noticing you know, that for the first time today I smelt lilacs because finally spring has arrived or I saw so-and-so today. She has the most peculiar walk. Or mm. train your eye and your ear. So-and-so talked to me today. She kept using the word ecstasy. 
train your senses to notice the world around you so that, you know, when you are writing, you have a mind and a series of diaries and journals that uh, will trigger really good sensual appreciation of the world around you. Interesting. Do you journal every day then? Never. Never. <laughs> when you're traveling though, do you? Then? When I'm traveling, I, I try to keep notes yeah. always. And I'm always amazed at how often I think I'm taking notes, for instance, in doing the research on Harry Oaks in the archives of the Bahamas. Mm. Um, and I think I'm taking notes on uh, just the page in front of me. But now I've learned to note also, you know, that it's sort of the archivist's fingernails are so long and painted such a garish color. And she's still using a rotary telephone and she can't actually use the dial. Yeah, fantastic. Um, and final question, uh, is there a favorite place you have in Canada? Yes, the island on which we have a cottage in Nubra Lake, just an hour and a half south of here. Oh, nice. Once we're on Pine Island, that's our fortress. Well, listen, thank you so much, Charlotte Gray, for coming in and talking to us. Thank you, David. It was a real pleasure. That was author and historian Charlotte Gray on Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast brought to you by One Ocean Expeditions. I'd also like to thank Robin Dumas of SoundShield Studios. His sound mixes and music have made this podcast sound as good as it does week in and week out. I'd like also to thank my colleagues with the RCGS and Canadian Geographic who have been crucial to the success of this first season. John Geiger, Aaron Kiley, Alex Pope, Andrew Lovesey, and Javier Frutos. And there are many more I'm not naming here, but thanks to all of you. RCGS does so much great work in promoting Canada to Canadians in the world through Canadian Geographic and by funding expeditions, research, educational materials, and more. You can support the work of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society by making a tax-deductible donation at rcgs.org forward slash donate. Until next season, thanks for listening.